You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. guys ready i think i'm ready welcome to the x-man podcast i'm your host doc coil thank you so much for tuning in i'll be honest guys it's been a weird couple weeks i was in the game of thrones hole and it was not pretty all right you know it's this is it listen it's, it's an incredible show it makes it makes me think all, all about human nature and politics and it's it's brilliant and it's all this you know these layers and the production it's, it's great but it's too here's the problem is too much of a good thing is it can devastate you and take over your world all right so i'm now that i've crawled out of westeros and i'm back into the real world um you know i'm, I'm starting to notice all of these these different things you know i released an article a couple weeks ago about soundtracks and movie soundtracks and me kind of lamenting on the past and how things were and I saw some of the commentary and I started to real, realize something about myself and and if anything you know and this is something I, I have to or maybe we all have to but I specifically since I am me have to kind of hold myself to is you know just my blind spots and my own bullshit and I think a lot of times I'll write or I'll talk on here about, you know, guys, I'm, I'm not uh, all about nostalgia. You know, I'm like anti-nostalgia, man, because I don't want to live in the past. And then if you kind of, you know, I started listening to some of the conversations I'm having on this show and a lot of things I'm writing. And I think, you know what, I think I was kind of lying to myself. Maybe I was trying to talk myself into the idea that I, that, that I don't have some affection for how things were and you know and that's it it's kind of shitty to, to admit that to myself sometimes you know I'm, I'm listening you know i listen to this 
conversation you're about to hear on this show. And I hear some of the themes, and this was not exactly something I did on purpose, but after a while, patterns arise. And I can see that this show is in large part about the past, all right? But I wanted to be... uh, I wanted to at least be clear that it's not about saying that, wow, wasn't that great? And looking at everything with kind of rose colored um, glasses, it's about looking back and trying to actually figure out what the hell was going on now that we know more. I guess that's I guess that's hopefully the, the distinction I can try and maintain for myself is this idea of me personally being someone who's always been fascinated by history, always wanted to know like how things worked, where did this come from? And then you you go back and you go down the rabbit hole and whatever I'm into, whether it's NBA and basketball or it's politics or it was comic books or music or movies, I want to know the lineage. I want to know the history. I want to hear the stories about everything was built and where things came from and who influenced this. And so I think that's a healthy relationship with the past. I started to realize that I might not write, do a lot of writing about music in the same way because I I think I was writing the same article over and over again in a lot of ways in that, hey, this is how it was, or hey, let's look at back at this this era, and wasn't that really cool, or man, you know, the industry, it just, it's not working like it used to be, and here's why. And 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 I can imagine as a reader that, that might get fucking boring, and it might get repetitive, and what's the point in writing something if I'm, if my angle is always the same? So, a little self-reflection is always healthy, and that's kind of my self-reflection for for the, this week and the, this show, which does focus a lot on the past and coming to grips with, you know what, that's kind of what this show is going to be, or a big part of it is going to be that. Not about back in the day, everything was great and all that, but it is going to be, hey, let's let's go down this rabbit hole and let's figure out what the hell happened let's let's kind of retell the story let's make it history or maybe um the i guess the what the the narrative or the interesting part of of a certain history would be as opposed to just amplifying the past and and remembering it maybe greater than it than it was because the truth is today right now this is this is what we're fucking dealing with the reality, the way things are now, you know, and the way they're going to be, that's that is the most present and, and tangible thing. And you have to confront that. I have to confront that. And I don't and I don't want the um the exploration of the past to be some kind of uh narcotic that dulls me and makes me forget about the now. That is not the path of the righteous man. To quote the great Jules Winfield. All right, that was a that was a pretty pretty ballsy self-serving rant. Yeah, look at me. Big ideas, Mr. Deep Guy. Yeah, I'll go fuck myself.
<laughs> so before we get into our, our talk with the Rev, Dave Ciencio, the ex-manager of God Forbid, I want to tell you guys about a couple of different things. One, my band, Vegas Nerve, has a couple shows coming up in the Northeast of the United States of America. We're doing three shows. Uh, the first one is August 4th in Clifton, New Jersey at Dingbats, August 5th in Trenton, New Jersey at the Championship Bar, and then August 6th at St. Vitus in Brooklyn, New York in the Greenpoint area, the legendary, or the becoming legendary St. Vitus. So uh, if you guys haven't heard Vegas Nerve, uh, check it out. It's V-A-G-U-S. I think we're pretty good. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I worked in New York, a lot of people. I hope to see some friends. I don't know who's listening to this podcast, where you're from, but if you, but if you are, you're around, please come out to the show. That would be great. And I also would like to plug a Jabberjaw Media podcast. I want to talk about a show called Noise Creators. And it is a podcast that talks to the top producers, musicians, and music business people about how they make great music and enable musicians' careers to grow. Past guests include the people behind Thrice, Intuit, Over It, Periphery, Side One Dummy, and producers like Blake Harnage, Alan Douches. Alan Douches actually mastered a couple God Forbid records. Oh, yeah. Machine, also from Jersey. Woo woo. Actually, I think he, he moved. Anyway, he was in New Jersey. And it is hosted by Jesse Cannon, a record producer and engineer who's worked with The Cure, The Misfits, Animal Collective, and Man Overboard, as well as authoring Get More Fans and current best-selling songwriting book, Processing Creativity. So check out Noise Creators. And with all that business done, I'd like to give a little intro before I start the interview with the Rev, Dave Ciencio. So I'm sure a lot of people don't know who he is, who listen to this show. Um, he is on the industry side. He's an ex-artist manager, and he basically was the guy that managed, God forbid, the longest and really took us from us being almost a, I guess, regional uh, independent act, you know, very wet behind the ears and took us to essentially the Gone Forever album where we started to see some significant record sales and create a an international profile. And I really want to bring more people like The Rev on this show because it's interesting to me. You know, I'm starting to actually realize that another thing this show is, is my own little personal historical record about what went down. You know, we did, I, I've done some special things in my life and me getting to go back and talk with people that were instrumental in the success or lack thereof of what I did earlier in my career is really fascinating to me. And I hope it's fascinating for you guys. So please enjoy this conversation with Dave Ciencio, AKA The Rev. I want to thank you, man, for uh, for taking your time to be on the X Man show. Now I'm stoked, man. That's uh, I've, I've been enjoying listening to the show. It's almost like 
having this weird like nostalgia conversation in my head, but I'm not participating. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what, in a way, that's what podcasting is, and what what I really, uh, really, really get out of it is that I get to basically hang out with all of these people I don't really know, but through the course of hearing people speak for in these long form kind of open conversations, you really get to know someone. You know, so it's, um, and, and I don't know, I, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of have this difficult, um, I guess, relationship with nostalgia because I don't consider myself a nostalgic person, but one of the things I try and accomplish with the show is kind of going back and kind of doing this autopsy on these events, um, you know, and, and, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm speaking to someone else outside of my own career but maybe we were parallel we were part of the same community but obviously what, what sets you apart is that you were pretty much you know you you were the forest gump for our <laughs> career <laughs> there for every major event for the for the most part when when, when things got going so it's obviously you know there's a, a perspective and 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 a knowledge an intimate knowledge that really you have almost, you know, probably no one else has with regards to, to God forbid. God bless. <laughs> I've been accused of doing worse things. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, so, so for people who, who don't really know, um, you were God forbid's manager along with the syndicate team, uh, I believe starting in 2000 and, from 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 what I remember, the way our relationship was formed was we had played a show with Shadows Fall, and you were already working with them. Is that true? Yep, that's the case. And um, what 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 would you say? What was your assessment of of what we were at that time? Um, I th- well, let me explain where I was at that time because I think it'll help give some headspace. Yeah, you know. I had sort of only recently gotten my feet planted as an artist manager. You know, we had managed as a as an organization. We had managed to fall at Carnage, um, and we've been managing Shadows Fall. And we, you know, we were working with. We we're starting to talk to Thursday, and you know, like I was just starting to figure out, like, oh, like I kind of know what I'm doing. I can help bands do more than get played on the radio, and I have this organization behind me. And so I was, I was in a point where I was like, I want more than one, one or two bands. Like I need more than this. Can you and, can, real quick? Can you explain uh, people listening what the syndicate actually is? Sure. So the music syndicates actually still exist. It's a, it's an agency in the music business, um, and they primarily are an agency that works to do uh, marketing and branding independently for record labels musicians and publishing houses so they get hired to work records whether it's at street or publicity or you know college radio stuff like that they do a lot of branding stuff they're a little more heavy now in doing some brand work but back at the time in the early 2000s we were 100 percent music 100 percent bands so uh, my role there is i was headed up our artist management division where is that the first thing you did or did you, or did you ever work on the marketing radio side well, when we started that company in 1997, 98, sorry, 1998, um, I was doing primarily college radio. So record labels would hire us to get their records played at radio. But I specifically only worked heavy metal, hardcore, punk, and hard rock records. So no no jangly college BS, just <laughs> just the good stuff. <laughs> that, that was your passion. 
<laughs> yeah, when I found Shadows Fall, somebody had sent me a demo, like a, a four-song cassette. It was still the old Link uh, logo, and Phil was still the singer, and the knife was still on drums. And I just thought it was unbelievable. And I was like, I think I can do something with this that nobody else can do, because we had enough contacts at like radio stations and with you know record labels and booking agents. I was like, well, maybe we can leverage these relationships to help like a small band. And you know, they got that deal with CM, and then you know they brought in Brian and. You know, things kind of took off. And then that's when I was like, oh, we actually can really do this artist management thing. And that's, you know, when I found you guys at that show and you know, came on stage and I thought Byron was incredibly commanding and a bit scary. You know, and I thought the 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 duo of you and your brother were just playing some really sick licks. And, you know, I thought, you know, where where John was coming from almost had this like, hey, these guys are trying to fight themselves between being a hardcore band and metal, but I'm just going to play Rush riffs, you know. And, <laughs> and then you had Corey was in the back. who looked, He was just beating on kitchen instruments, and I was like, this looks cool. I'm into it. <laughs> so uh, I was at a point where I wanted to expand our roster, and I thought, well, if we could do this for Shadows Fall, you know, we could do this for a band like God Forbid. Did you orchestrate the Shadows Fall Central Media deal? Somewhat. So we we, had sh we were trying to help them shop. Now we didn't know how to shop at the time, and we weren't talking to A&R guys, and we, it just wasn't who we were as an agency. But you know, we knew people, and the world of metal was then and still is pretty pretty small and insular. So I had sent a copy of the cassette to Andrew Sample, who I know you know, mm -hmm. uh, but your audience probably doesn't know. At the time, Andrew was the head of promotions for Century Media. So he was hiring our company and other companies and calling radio himself to get radio played. And I sent it to him and was like, dude, you're going to love this band out of Massachusetts. And he lit was literally like, this is unbelievable. This is everything I like about thrash, but like so updated and so new. And, you know, this is 2000. So at the time, you know, the new wave of American heavy metal kind of hadn't been phrased yet. And he took it to Tom B, who you know very well. And Tom B loved it. And I kind of knew Tom B. And Tom B called me and he's like, what do you think of this band? And I was like... I think that whoever signs this band wins and I think they're going to kick off, you know, sort of the next stage of, of metal in America and not to pat myself on the back, but I was pretty on the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing about that, that show. So, so we played a show in 2000 at the Saint in uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey. And I can say as this, this band, you know, us specifically being this awkward metal band within you know who but who found a home in in the hardcore scene you know we always we just never fit in you know we were it was ever never quite right you know we were either playing some of these you know kind of really noisy crazy stuff in the hardcore scene like you know dillinger or converge or we would play like a death metal show you know we'd go to new york and play with internal bleeding you know we were never it never quite there was ne you know there was there was no niche for us yet and playing with Shadows Fall it was literally the first time we played with a band that seemed like we were coming from the same place even though our bands didn't sound the same um, you could tell like our influences were similar and we were going for a similar thing so it was, it was pivotal pivotal in in more ways than than one now. But the thing is, interesting about that was we were already talking to Century Media at that time. Um, did um, the fact that we already had label interest, was did that have a, a lot to do with your interest with the band? Like feeling like you would have 
a partner uh, in in breaking the ban? Um, not in sort of that initial wow moment. Like when I say I saw you guys on stage and was like, "Holy crap, these guys are just bringing the motherload." That made me want to know more. That made me want to meet you guys. That made me want to listen to the music at home. That made me want to dig into the story. It was then, you know, finding out that Tom B and CM, you know, were interested. That was like, okay, my gut reaction's right here. Like, I'm not the only one that sees potential here. So, you know, the, the CM didn't make me want to be interested, but it certainly made me want to take a next step. Yeah, well, the thing is, it, it wasn't even that they were interested. We were doing the deal already. Uh, basically, I mean... Our story, I mean, I've told it, uh, I'm sure I've told it a few times here, but to, to reiterate, essentially, we finished the Reject the Sickness album in the studio, our first full length, first thing that was like, oh, this is a real, we're, oh, we're finally a real band. Uh, Steve Evitz sends it to Central Media, and we literally get a call a couple weeks later, basically like, we want to sign your band, and it's Tommy. <laughs> it, it, it was never, hey, we're thinking about it, maybe it was pretty direct which as you understand is pretty unheard of that doesn't really happen very often in the in the record industry um, no and look I, I don't think it happened then i don't think it happens now but you know to tom b's credit for those that don't know him he was pretty decisive like you know whether it was you guys or the shads or you know haste or god i'd have to go look at all the bands he signed but you know, he sat in that seat over at CM and was like, I'm changing the course of things here. And he was just going to call his shots. Yeah. And obviously he wanted to sign Killswitch as well, but obviously yep. they, they went in a different direction. So one of the primary things I remember about that time is just the level of greenness within myself <laughs> and collectively the rest of the band and that because our perspective on things was we never thought of it as a business. We never could foresee actually being successful. You know, it really almost up until that point, everything that we had done that defined our band was almost like by our failures in many ways. Like, like, like we, like, I mean, I, I don't think you could uh, fit the chip on our shoulder in, you know, the, the Grand Canyon. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm sure you, you, you felt that, felt that vibe, but, but the, but even the thing that overshadowed that more was just, we knew nothing about the business, you know, I, and we, and we never saw it as this thing like, oh, we're going to make money or we're going to go on tour. And, and so really, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but for, for me, it was almost like, you know, we relied on you for everything. I yep. mean, it, it was it was ver very much, um, you know, a, a situation where if you didn't, sh you and the syndicate didn't show up, I don't know what we would have done, really. I don't know if the band ever, even if we would have signed a Century Media, it would, you know, you know, the amount of mistakes, and we made mistakes, obviously, with you guys, because you were still growing and learning, but I imagine we would have made that much more mistakes or, or perhaps the the growth of the band would have been a lot a lot slower well it's easy to have 2020 vision retrospectively <laughs> no but i even knew it at the time it was just no but it was just like in a way meeting you was like oh here's this thing called the music business yep which is what we weren't engaged in before that we were just in playing music you know that and, and those are different things 
know. Yeah, and I think I look, for me at that time, you know, I had just sort of figured out like, oh, we can do something for these bands that they just can't do on their own. And, you know, we we cut our teeth a lot of that with with the Shads, you know, and when when we came to you guys and when I wanted to work with God forbid, I was like I was kind of feeling my own flow, you know. It, it was probably similar. I was probably in a similar place that you were like, oh, I can do all these things for a band that they can't do. Let me just go do them. And, you know, whether it was, you know, bulldozing over a label to get you guys what you wanted or, you know, even trying to bulldoze a band into making a decision, like I was a little head toppy as well, you know? Yeah, well, well, the thing about, so the, the things that I remember, you know, about, about you and, and the things that, you know, like me, I, you know, I feel like... Um, Maybe more so than anyone else in the band that me, me and you had a really strong bond pretty quickly. Uh, yep. I think we're kindred spirits in, um, part, part, in mainly in just passion. Like that's to me, uh, you know, if there's anything I could, uh, a way I could describe you was just that your passion seemed to be able to lead you in, in such a, you know, it was like this kind of combination of passion, but like confident passion, like the way... It seemed like you were able to get things done for us, whether that's getting us on a tour or, you know, hooking up some sponsorship or something was you were so passionate and believed in the band so much. You were able to almost let people uh, vicariously absorb your passion for 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 the band. And I, and I imagine it was that way for all of your bands. But I, you know, it, it, it I felt it, you know, both what we were doing in a really intense way. Well, thank you, man. That's nice to hear. I, I would, I would say that about myself. Although I'd feel like an egotistical jerk saying it, but I mean, it, it was. And you know, at the time, I think when we decided to become managers, and again, going after you guys, Shadows Fall, Thursday, Murder by Death, the bands we were going after, after like the that scene didn't exist, right? Yeah. Like you had like like you said, you had like all these hardcore bands in like DC and New Jersey, and you had the like the beginning of mathcore. Right. Then you had like this New York death metal thing. Right. You had like New England hardcore. You had like pop punk on the West Coast. And then for a moment, the entire metal scene was dominated by Europe. Right. It was in flames and Mashuga and like, you know, soil work and like everybody in Demu Borgir, like everybody yeah. wanted screaming and melody. And like that wasn't a part of our scene. Like it just wasn't. And then out of nowhere, like bands just started popping up like you guys and shads and i was like how come i'm seeing this and nobody else is like i know this is the next thing i can feel it i love metal that much like i've seen how excited people were at new england metal and hardcore fest i've seen what happened to milwaukee metal metal fest like i i know this is coming and so it was that sort of like blind excitement for like the next thing in of metal where like I can take this music that i love and these bands that i really appreciate and i can help all of them mm -hmm. and and so it was sort of that almost blind passion that led me into what else can I do? You know, who else can I have? What else, where else can we take this? So now I, now I want to clear up something. So you said before that you were talking this Thursday when you met us, but I specifically remember that I had something to do with hooking you up with Thursday or introducing you to Jeff. Am I, am I remember that wrong? Um, no, so we hadn't yet like, uh, the, the conversations hadn't begun, but there was like somebody had sent me the first record and I was talking to the label like, but you definitely facilitated like you sent an email like, hey, I know this guy's pretty cool. We had already met with them. 
or I'd, I'd seen their first show and I was like, I want this band and you knew Jeff. I was like, Doc, can you please just put in a good word? And I think it was, hey, I know our manager's like Mr. Metal, but like you can trust this guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that was, you know, in, in many, well, listen, as far as I'm concerned, you know, not being a humble person, um, I take credit <laughs> for all of that. And <laughs> well, it, it is true. You know, first there was Rick to life, and then you, and then New Jersey happened. Yeah, well, I consider myself the Forrest Gump to your life, really, being there for every every major major moment. But but no, I I, I thought that was so um, reflective of of what the New Jersey scene was about because there, you know, we did shows with Thursday, and we did shows with Piebald, and we, you know, it was. Uh, and you and I, like, you know, and for people who don't know this, this is kind of Northeast emo or screamo, you know, before that scene became this kind of monumental um, cultural movement, it was this little thing, you know, that, you know, our, our friend Ray Harkins likes to call just independent music and, and genre had very little to do with it, you know, uh, or, or I would say genre sound, the sound itself, you know, it was, it was really about... Uh, the, the the kind of scene ethics and the community you know and that was so so well represented I, I don't know if that could have existed anywhere except for New Jersey at the, at the time um, you know maybe in the maybe in some parts of Southern California but yeah I agree with you they really it really felt homogeneous it really felt like I don't know this is the New Jersey scene it's not those are the metal guys these are the hardcore guys we're the emo guys like people were just kind of stoked to have shows you know. Yeah. So where, where, where did you come from originally? The Midwest? I'm originally from Detroit. Detroit. Oh, Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. Um, <laughs> so so when you got to the Northeast, were you already into that scene or you kind of discovered it um, as, a, as you kind of got there? Dude, you will laugh, right? So I grew up in Michigan and for two and a half years, I hosted one of the most popular college heavy metal shows in America. It still is up there. You know, we, we were actually driving sales. Like, we only had 3,000 watts at, at WDBM in East Lansing, Michigan. But I would get phone calls from record execs like, oh, my God, we're selling records in your market. How is this happening? Like, we just knew what we were doing. And, uh, but I liked metal. And hardcore to me was kind of like, ah, uh, like I'd get victory would send me a cause for alarm CD and it'd be like, these guys are sloppy. I don't like this. <laughs> you appreciated the skill. <laughs> yeah. And so somebody would send me like an earth crisis and I was like, now I guess the riffs are kind of cool. And, but it was funny. So when I moved in here in 96, cause I'm, you know, I'm in New York city now, I've been here since, you know, I was like, the one thing that I wanted to ask everybody was like, why do you like life of agony so much? Like, like, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, these guys suck. They're like the Pearl Jam of hardcore. And, you know, like I had to be introduced into what the hardcore scene really was. I had to be introduced into like the punk scene and the emo scene and like the whole New Jersey thing. Like where I came from, we just didn't have that. You know, we had, I lived in a college town. So you get like all the collegey, jangly, you know, pop ripoff bands that thought they were, you know, the next Bush or something. But, we we just didn't have it. It just didn't exist, you know. Well, from D, I mean, I I think, and and that's the thing about regionality that perhaps doesn't exist in the same way. It'll never exist in the same way because of the internet and the ability to kind of forge your influences globally. Um, 
But yeah, I think that was that perspective, or even you you put a band like E Town Concrete, you know, to be able to have this very kind of you know college indie uh, emo thing, but then also this very urban. Uh, you know, kind of piss and vinegar uh, hip hop thing, you know, hip hop rock thing and have that work. And it and it just spoke to kind of, I, I think, the the cultural temperature of what was going on because New Jersey's so just, it really truly is a melting pot. Like it, you know, and I know that that phrase gets overused, but, you know, everything literally blend together, which is why I think every band that got popular was a mix of these these things that you didn't think go together and these things, you know, and that's how everyone thought, you know, at, at, at the time. So, so well, I think, you know, don't, don't forget New Jersey has something special that no other state has. And that's WSOU. Yeah. You know, you have a, a, a pretty significant wattage college radio station playing hardcore metal, punk and emo almost 24 hours a day, you know, six days a week. And so, you know, you could be listening to that station and, you know, I remember the, as soon as I crossed the Pennsylvania border when I was moving out here, I was like, where's the 89.5? And the first thing they played was Caius. And I was like, I've literally never heard Caius on the radio in my life unless I played it, right? And then, yeah. you know, from there they went into, I couldn't even remember that, but was so stoked to be able to listen to that. And then also everything else they're playing. And like an hour later, I'm still listening. I'm like, ooh, what's Candiria? That's cool. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the my superhero origin story for half of the underground and extreme bands was was discovering them on SOU, whether it is Candiria or At the Gates or Morbid Angel. I mean it's it's pretty it's pretty insane. Um do we I mean, ever, I lot, Yeah, there's a lot of people around here that if you ask, hey, what's the first time you heard Seven Dust or System of a Down, they're gonna tell you you know, it was on SOU. Link guilty, guilty for for both. Actually, no, no. <laughs> uh, System of a Down. I had that sampler with Clutch, <laughs> the uh, American Records sampler oh, yeah. when they opened for for Slayer. Actually, Slayer was on it too. So it was a three band tape sampler. <laughs> uh, did I ever tell you how we got on SOU? No. Um, so basically, we were all working the same job. This is hilarious. Like this is should be like a sitcom, like a, a, a band where we were all landscapers. We were working the same job. And, you know, while we're driving from each lawn to mow, we would listen to SOU and just get mad <laughs> at all the, like, bands that were getting played that we thought were whack. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and so, you know, we did our first EP. We we basically what we, we we started doing, and I guess now you would call this just networking, but we didn't know anything. We would just find out who the DJs were and just harass them, <laughs> <laughs> and be like, "You need to play us. We're we're better. We're better than this band. There's they they suck." So we had this dude, um, Dave Teleposki. I don't know if you remember him. I remember, Dave. but he had a show uh, called um, Hardcore. What was it? Hardcore Hard Reality, Hard right? Hardcore Reality, yeah, yeah. So basically, he started playing one of the one of the uh, one of our like old songs on Hardcore Reality. Did whatever, but then when Reject the Sickness came out, obviously the band had, it was it was ready. You know, we were finally good enough, and so they would have the Hardcore Reality cut of the week. And so what he basically did, they would not put us in regular rotation because we weren't signed. So he just made us the Hardcore Reality cut of the week for like two months. <laughs> <laughs> And then, 
you brainwashed him. Yeah, and then no, but 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 it, it worked. We we basically were of the mind. We're like, listen, we know we're good enough. As long as we could get in front of people, people will like it. And it was true. You know, we you know, I can't say, you know, we bet on ourselves, but he bet that it was, you know, that, you know, I've I've noticed this now, you know, kind of me doing some management of my own and trying to break my my new band and seeing that if you don't have a label that a lot of these these they just don't want to play you because they don't feel like you have that kind of that seal of approval you know but when people hear something on the radio they don't know whether it's signed or not they just know whether they like it or not yep exactly you know so that's a, that was that that's an interesting uh interesting tidbit there I want to talk about the determination album cycle um, because obviously that was the first time we, we worked together because Reject the Sickness was not able to come out on um, on Central Media. Actually, let me ask you a question before I get into that. Do you think if Reject the Sickness would have come out on Central Media that our career arc would have been different? That's a good question. Like if that was the starting point at which the world had been introduced to you rather than determination? Yeah, because I'm, I'm of the, well, people don't remember at the time it had only sold about like the original pressing reject the sickness was 3000 copies. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was mainly sold, um, you know, uh, regionally, you know, obviously people, you know, back then there were distros and stuff. So I know people got it all over the country for the most part, but my feeling on it was essentially that, uh, um, Shadows Fall of One Blood came out in 2000. Richard Jackson came out in 1999. So by the time Determination came out in 2001, I remember reading reviews and people basically saying we were ripping off Shadows Fall. Yep. <laughs> and I definitely, I definitely remember you know points at which you guys were being discarded as like second wave or you know, and I was kind of I remember trying to get on the phone like, no, nah, no, nah, these guys been around just as long. It, it could have changed the. It could have changed the, you know, the trajectory of the band. What what I think though, and you know, listen, we're again we're armchair armchair quarterbacking here. You know, the the style on Reject the Sickness and the style of Determination to me were so vastly different that I think you might have been pigeonholed as one type of band. And when you came out with the Determination, some of your fans may have not accepted it. Whereas when it came out, it was like. That to me, that record is the musical foundation for the rest of your career. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I think definitely the big, the bigger difference is we probably would have been thought of more as a metalcore band. Yeah. In, in the in the vein of uh, Unearth, more so than a heavy metal band, probably. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but um, but so so determination comes out. But do you, do you remember the notes you gave us? on the determination demo that we did with Zeus, which I, I believe was um, Go Your Own Way, Wicked, and maybe nothing. I can't remember. No, no, Divide My Destiny. I can't Divide remember. My Destiny, yeah. And do you remember the note you gave us? Uh, I, I, I do. Not, I, don't, I don't remember any of the exact quotes. Oh, it's a, it's a good quote. But I remember writing it and thinking, these guys are going to either, they're either going to completely hate me or they're gonna take what I'm trying to say to heart and 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 try to use it. All right, here's and I the, just, here's I just the, dropped the bomb. Here's the quote: <laughs> "Where's the chug?" <laughs> <laughs> I 
and this is and this is and this is in regards to reject the sickness, which was a much more, I say, meat and potatoes um, between frantic uh, speed and just New Jersey beatdown. <laughs> and yeah, but listen, you guys, you guys would play that song. And the room would go from like lukewarm to like surface of the sun, boiling Which hot. Which song? Reject the sickness. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I know. And I'm re- <laughs> and actually, this is actually a funny thing because you were like, you should re-record "Reject the Sickness" for deter- uh, determination. Which actually, I don't think was a is a bad idea. Like I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, but you know, we can't go back. It's 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 interesting. But no, there was so there was a really interesting thing about determination. Which I think actually, when I when I think about this, and not even just relation to us, but um, all kind of creative uh, situations with bands, was because Central Media decided not to put out "Reject the Sickness," which we had pretty much just finished or just you know put out. We had to write determination right away. So we yeah. so creatively for determination, we were really reaching, you know, kind of to the depths and. And I think sometimes when you're in a situation like that, and I, could, I would probably put uh, Constitution of Trees in that same boat too, where in a way when you have to do something in a quicker time, you don't get to think about it as much. In a way, it's more natural and more kind of, um, it's a truer artistic expression because you can't, you're not calculating as much, you know? Nope. But I think too, and, and this is probably not so true these days anymore, like that was an album. Like you sat down and you listened to it from the beginning till end and it had like a flow and a cadence and a story and a feeling and it took you on a journey and all the songs played into and out of each other. It wasn't just like a compilation of tracks like it showed to me and I think the world in a certain degree like, oh, this is not just a chug band like this is a band that really is thinking about who they are, what they want to be, what these songs mean, who their audience is. And to me, it almost, it showed to me from a writing level that stylistically, you know, you were on a level with a band like In Flames in terms of where your head was at, you know? Yeah. And I remember listening to like the very, fir- like the Zeus, first Zeus mix out of, out of Eric's studio. Like I drove down there, I think Zeus didn't mix like, it though, Eric, Rachel mixed it. I'm sorry, I, but we listened to it, we listened to the first uh, mix before Eric got it. Sorry, and we were sitting in the studio, and he put on Dawn of the Millennium. I'm like, okay, all right, nobody's gonna like this, <laughs> and it rips right into nothing. And that song is such a punch to the jaw, like it gave me this, you know, what if Pantera took an opera class, you know, and then into Broken Promise. I was like, at that point, I was like, I can't wait to hear the rest of this record. Like, it's so powerful. It's so good. It's got such a wallop. And, like, I couldn't wait for that record to be done because I wanted to put it in front of people and make them listen to it. Yeah. It's interesting. But but I, I feel like we all left the um, – actually, this actually, this is a really important story. And this is kind of like, thank God for the rev. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, I get one. I get oh, one. <laughs> no, you get no, you get you get many, but this one is is <laughs> this is just like in high in hindsight. So I I I think I wanted to call the album Dawn of the New Breed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was already the song, the two part song Determination, 
And you were, and I think, I remember, I think one of the comments from someone at the syndicate was, yeah, people are just going to think it's dawn of the new hate breed. <laughs> and then, and then you were like, guys, determination. And I, and you know, and it's, and listen, and, and it's, uh, and I think like that, like the name of the album and the artworks was done, done by Don Clark and, you know, and kind of what we were doing was, you know, we were all of our approaches, especially at that time, were very artistic and abstract and trying to present this new thing in a different way. But then I feel like, and it had this relevance within the Northeast, but I, I felt like once we got out there and started touring, it was kind of a, the, the whole package was a tough pill to swallow because no one could put it in one container, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, did, and, and, I, and we would have these meetings and I think we would hear your frustration because it seemed like the 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 mainstream metal world, or I wouldn't say mainstream, but like the the actual industry itself was a lot was more willing to to swallow the shadow swall pill. And we always felt kind of in their shadow. Yeah. That I mean, I fought against that too. And look, I don't it's possible that having me on your team at the time played into that because if I'm on a phone call and it's revolver magazine as an example, and I have two, what I believe to be prominent metal bands in the American scene and I want revolver to do something with both. Like, of course they want the bigger one. Right. And so there were times at which I were they that much bigger though, because when I look at the record sales, it wasn't that they were that much bigger. They were just a year ahead. So if you looked at the end of the cycle, we had sold like 20,000, 25,000 copies, which was twice as much as the label thought we were. Well, yeah, I don't necessarily mean at that moment in time. I mean yeah. like in the entire lifetime of which I worked with you guys. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if I'm calling to talk to you and I'm the manager of Thursday, but I want something for patent pending, you're like – you want something from Thursday and I'm trying to get you to play this punk band. And I think, you know, you guys being managed by me at the same time I was managing Shadow's Fault may have put you on some, in some regard in the shadow, uh, you know, to use a pun, inadvertently. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, a lot of at the time, like there weren't a whole bunch of metal managers out there. And all of a sudden they started popping up and then it became like, you know, Vaughn and Kenny's bands and my bands and Jason's bands and like, you know, and, and it became like this thing where it was like, you know, Paul Conroy and people were starting to build tours, Mark, Mike Mowry, like around their own bands and they all became their own little bubble. So it's possible that me being involved put you, you know, inadvertently in a place where, you know, all things being equal, you weren't equal anymore, you know? Well, I, well, the thing is, like, I, I specifically remember, you know, having that inferiority complex and feeling that because that determination was abrasive in its in its own way the narrative i was hearing and we took was that you know the you know the big difference between us and shadow swallow at that time was they were more accessible they had singing parts they had you know they had quiet parts they were um like i said that easier pill to swallow and i think Kind of the the downside of that is that I think, you know, it was kind of maybe passively relayed to us that if we don't kind of tone down the craziness, that we're going that doors will be shut forever, and that probably influenced 
uh, you know, and then also that whole album cycle and um, maybe us feeling that we didn't hit the point. Like we didn't, even though if we, if we probably would have, um, were more sure of ourselves at the time, probably would have um, actually understood how successful it was. But we, we always felt inadequate. And I think that had a lot to do with the change in sound from Determination to, to Gone Forever. Most of which I think is positive, to be honest. Um, I think I think that is, to me, that's the album that, you know, when I, if I listen to Determination versus Gone Forever, Go- Gone Forever is more true to what my vision of the band, what, what I wish the band to be, you know? Yeah, uh, they're both great records. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure it's different. So, so, for, so I'm sure no one listening to this outside of the the true ins- insiders. So, Dave and I, and I and I'm pretty sure this is unorthodox for at least in the underground. I'm sure this is probably fairly prominent in like the mainstream world or the pop world. But you would you traveled with us a lot. Um, you came with us to the UK. Uh, I, I think at least a couple times. Uh, you came uh. with us to Japan. Um, and you have a God forbid tattoo. I mean, it doesn't say God forbid, <laughs> but it's from a piece of artwork. At least I, you, you know, you did have it. I don't know if you know your 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 wife yelled at you and, and made you get it removed. <laughs> no, you know the tattoo is actually how I still have it, but that's actually how I met my wife. Okay, you're welcome. See, <laughs> thank, see God, <laughs> see Doc, you are you you are the force come to my life. <laughs> <laughs> my wife i was at a hardcore show at cbgb's my my now wife came up to me and said hey where'd you get your tattoo done and at the time i was actually like hitting on another girl who actually happened to be dating the singer of the band that was on stage wow and i was like and i was interested in the girl i was already working on and i was like la leave me alone <laughs> and my now wife was not going to be rejected <laughs> so she basically cock blocked me from talking to this other girl well now we're married and have a kid wow. i still have a god i still have a god forbid tattoo Listen, if there's a, there's, a, if there's a woman out there that sees that 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 hunk of man, the, the rev is like, I'm gonna get me some of that. You know, I think that's the one for you. You gotta, you know, that type of persistence can should not be ignored. So you you know you have you have good instincts, my friend. <laughs> so it's, it is a pretty badass tattoo, though. <laughs> um, so things so so for us, obviously. What happened? So you know, I, so an, another time, I, I would say that that I feel, and I I legitimately feel like you saved the band during this time. So the period in which you tell the story about in Cardiff when I threw you guys off stage and into the van and screamed at you. No, that wasn't me though. Who that was like? I forget who did something, but I I, rem- I re- completely remember. So so we did this tour. I this is this is you know people always ask me what's the you know. Do you have any tour story? What's the worst tour? What's the best tour? So the that worst, the worst tour I've right. ever been on. All right. So the worst tour, God forbid, ever did, um, and it's very important for our relationship, um, especially at the time, was God forbid was supposed to do a half of an Opeth Catatonia tour. We had opened for Nevermore and Opeth and Angel Dust um, previously. This is to, uh, summer of two thousand one. And it was Opeth's first ever U.S. tour. They were, um, you know, it was clear that they were special and they, you know, you know what they are now. I'm not saying that was clear, but they were obviously on this trajectory. 
and they took a liking to us um, personally, musically, and they invited us on on this tour. And there was a there was basically I'm not gonna I want to throw anyone under under the bus, but <laughs> someone in our band uh, <laughs> didn't do something they were supposed to do, and we got kicked off the tour, uh, kind of last minute. Um, the Rev said, "You know what? We are. I guess were our flights already booked? Is that the situation? Or I can't exactly remember, but we had done that tour with Stampin' Ground." Yes, we, we had already been to the U- to tell the story. We had already been to the UK earlier that spring, and it did really well because that was supposed to be a Shadows Fall tour, and the Shads had to pull out to make a record, and I leveraged you guys into that spot. Yeah, it was great. And, it was a fantastic. And tour. that tour, that tour was unbelievable. Yeah. So so the basi- yeah. So basically, we got a little too big big for our britches off that. Yeah. One, so, so basically, we we cobbled together a uk tour in december you know and um and and due to some uh communications getting crossed we ended up in these uh cargo vans with no heat (laughs) i think or maybe one of them didn't have heat so half the band was like uh laying down on on equipment and we're freezing and these shows are you know very small you know i'm talking 20, 30 people. Actually, I think there's some of the footage is on YouTube. And we were just miserable. It was freezing. We were, you know, we had been touring the, the entire, literally the entire year. We started touring in January and it was now December. And I think we'd maybe been home for a month or two during, during that whole time. So we were definitely at our, at our wits end. And, but the, but the best thing about it was <laughs> the Rev was there to suffer with us. Oh, it was so... I look back at it now and laugh because it was kind of, it's fun to think about the things that happened, but I have never lost my temper so many times in such a short period of, of time as we did on that tour. I mean, and my, this, this is, you know, I still tell this story all the time. <laughs> we were going to go play a show in Pontypridd. Do you remember this? It was in Wales. Yeah. And it got canceled. <laughs> yeah. We're in, we're in. That we set. celebrated. This <laughs> is the worst van ever. With no heat, no windows, no light, no nothing. We're sitting on equipment, and we get a phone call from uh, I can't remember that promoter's name, but now he's like multi-millionaire. Yeah, doesn't he run like Download or some? Yeah, he runs like... that. Like, but at the time he was booking punk shows in like tiny little towns in Wales. Anyway, he called. He called. He called, and we had like one of those rent-a-cell phones. And he calls me, and he's like, "Mate, he's like, gig got, tonight got canceled. Don't worry." You can all stay at my house. Everybody can do laundry. My wife's going to cook for everybody. I'm going to take everybody to the pub. And we were kind of like relieved. We're like, yeah. don't, ha- don't have to play a show in a crappy venue. Don't have to worry about only 10 people are coming. Don't have to unpack gear. Get to sleep in a warm house. Get to clean our clothes. Get some beer and pasta. Like we were stoked. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, this is my favorite. He goes, I-, I-, I just have to meet you after work. So go. There's this pub at the end of my street. It's in It's in the the car park of a tesco just have a couple pints and i'll I'll come get you after work so like okay fine we'll go there you know we roll up we smell we stink you know i'm sure bebo hadn't showered the entire time you know and we get out we walk into that pub in pontypridd and i swear there was not a vowel in the name of that bar it was all consonants and i open up the door and smoke comes billowing out and it's brightly lit and we walk in and 
sitting around the bartender is like all locals, right? And it was like a scene out of a movie, like the needle on the record scratches, the smoke kind of clears, and like here comes, like God forbid, and me. Tattooed, beards, stinky, you know, white guys, black dudes, like we must have looked so out of whack, right? We, I was like, guys, let's just go sit in the back. Like, let's just go in the other room. Let's sit in the back. Let's like, we're already getting dirty looks. Somebody will get around, right? And as we're sitting there, I can see at the bar that everybody at the bar is talking about us. They're looking over their shoulder. The bartender's saying something. They're smoking cigarettes, like, right? And I go to get a second pint. They kind of look at me. And as we're sitting there having a second pint, you can see it was almost like one of them gets up, like adjusts his belt, like kind of tucks his shirt in, like he drew the short straw. <laughs> He, he comes over to the table and he looks at us and I'm like, oh God, oh God, where's this going? What is he going to say? Like, are we about to get beat down? Like, what's going to happen? And he goes, are y'all Taliban? I'm like, guys, it's time to go. We're out of here. Finish your pints. I'm grabbing Beaker by the neck. Like, get out of this pub. And we just went and sat in the pub in, in, in or sat in the van and ate peanut butter sandwiches until that dude got off of work. Jesus. Well, I, I, and, and that was... You know, a couple months after nine eleven. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, and and that night, I don't know, I don't know if you remember this. I ended up blacking out and going home with some girl, and and ending up in a random house in in Wales. And you found me, luckily. So, <laughs> if it wasn't for you, I would have a new life in Wales right now. So, <laughs> thank you, thank you speaking, for that. Speaking in all continents. <laughs> yes. But no. The, so, but the thing that was I thought was interesting about that moment was that it was bonding in, in a way because you most, you know, A, it, it said something about you that you were actually willing to come out and, and experience what we experienced because I, I think a lot of times when things go wrong between uh, artists and, and management or agents is that, you know, they're not really there to experience what, what bands go through. And you, in a sense got to experience the worst of things and then you, you fast forward two or three years after that and we're in japan with in flames you get to kind of experience the best of it you know um and yeah, you know you know what it was doc i'm i'm it, i had one time by another band been accused like call you know and i would do the daily checkup hey i'm calling today how did you do on merch last night you know what do you think of this hey here's an update on that you know did you guys take care of this like we had like our checklist right and for your band it was usually you and me and then another band i work with i called one day and i was like you didn't do anything i asked you to do yesterday and they said you don't know what it's like on the road you don't know how busy we are and i like took that to heart Mm -hmm. I was like, bullshit, I will get in the van and I will ride with you and I'll be the merch dude and I'll be the tour manager and I'll be the guy that makes sure we get fed at late night. Like I'll count the money. Like I'll, I want to go out there and experience it because I felt that that actually made me better as a manager to be able to understand what you guys had to go through to create a business and to create a career. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff. 
as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Yeah, no, I think, but but I think it ultimately, it gave, that experience gave you a lot of empathy and kind of leeway uh, to, yeah. for us to be like, you know, understand. Because the thing is, you know, that first record, we weren't making any money. We we're making, you know, our guarantees were $100, $150, $200. There was no money left over, basically, at the end of it. You know, we were all living at home, you know, and, and it and it was what it was, and and in a sense, you know, it's a you know my perspective now understanding how much sacrifices the management made because so the big difference between working with you guys and probably other managers was we had a team and and you know uh, the syndicate was a team so we had we had uh, Mark Meltzer we had Jackie uh, doing our our day to day we had all these re- and then we obviously had the syndicate as a whole doing uh, college radio. So we had tremendous advantages that really didn't exist in the underground at that time. You know, I, I don't, you know, as far as I, I know. Yeah, there, there, there wasn't anybody else doing what we were doing. Yeah, so I understood that. I understood how, 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 how lucky we were. But no, the, the, the point I was going to make about how you saved the band was we, so in between Determination and Gone Forever, we were like depressed, you know, we almost, you know, people don't remember what, you know, we, we were, we had a falling out with Byron and we, you know, there was talks about maybe having a different singer and we kind of felt like we did all this touring, but you know, we were disillusioned. We thought, oh, we're going to be, we're going to, we're on tour with Cradle of Filth. Now we're going to be Cradle of Filth. Like we, you know, we were stupid. We didn't have any idea that, nah, this isn't how it works. You have to just build it and grind it and it'll, it'll happen. So, but you know, and it, and it kind of took a long time to finish Gone Forever and kind of pull it back together. And during that time, that's when Shadows Fall started taking off. That's when Lamb of God started taking off. And we, you know, like I said, that chip on our shoulder was just like a boulder, you know, feeling like we were owed such and such because we were part of starting the scene, you know. But I remember having a conversation with you and I was was working uh, security. Right on the on the on, I was doing like overnights and I literally it was actually the job was great because I literally didn't have to do anything. I just had to, <laughs> all I had to do was stay up and all I do is I would just like pr- I could practice guitar, I could watch movies, and read. It was a really actually, a, but I remember having a conversation with you that kind of helped me get through. Like you had more faith in us at that time than we had in ourselves. 
and that allowed, you know, and obviously, you know, I, I don't know my positioning in the band in terms of leadership at the time, but whatever, you know, obviously if you have one or two people that are kind of pushing things forward, then it'll kind of bring everyone else along. But, you know, I don't know if you remember that. And I don't even remember what you said specifically, but I remember it being very, very inspirational at that time to kind of continue on to the next chapter. Well, I mean, you know, I think you kind of nailed it. And I hope this doesn't come across as super egotistical, but like I didn't see myself as someone that was external to the band. I saw myself as a part of the band. You know, my role was not to write or sing or play or practice my, you know, I had another role and, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but like I had things to do that, you know, you guys couldn't do because you had to focus on other things. And so, you know, in a moment where, you know, you guys sort of had a down moment, I was like, well, these are my, these are my brothers. This is my team. This is my family. Like I got to be there for them, you know? And I looked at that as like, you know, I don't, I wasn't so programmatic in my thinking, but I was like, this is my, now is where I got to step up. Here's where I have to be the leader. You know, here's where, here's where it's my turn to put the, put, you know, put the wheels back on, on the bus to put the lights back, you know, facing forward and help these guys finish out what they, you know, intended to do. And, you know, I remember that time and, you know, I think, you know, I don't care if you're a band or a sales organization or, you know, a restaurant, like you're going to go through those moments. Right. And I just think, remember thinking at the time, like you guys worked so freaking hard and you did so many cool things and you were on so many awesome tours and you put out a great record and you got so many great reviews that like giving up was just not okay. Like it was not, you had accomplished so much that I was like, we can't let this go to waste. Like it is our responsibility to get up and stand on top of this hill that we built. Yeah. And the, you know, and right after that, this the scene that didn't exist at the beginning of our of the determination cycle now all of a sudden not only existed but it was exploding and this is around 2003 2004 and we made gone forever and then it, and then finally all the work starts to pay off it seems you know um all of a sudden we're having some real record sales and obviously we land Ozfest which is kind of this the linchpin of that that album cycle, what did, I mean, what was your feelings? Like, did you feel vindicated or did you feel like we're just scratching the surface or, you know, what, what do you remember about, about all that the stuff of finally kind of graduating to that next level? Well, what I remember the scene at the time, right? So that was 2003, right? So if you look at who was on Ozfest in 2003, right? You had Shadows Fall, you had Kill Switch, right? You had Sworn Enemy and Chimera, and nothing right? Face. And nothing face those like the heavy filth. Bands. Yeah, but then you also had Grade Eight, Twisted Method, uh, Un Loco, Epswa, Moto Grader, Endo, you know, Endo, Memento, right? <laughs> and if you go back a year, if you go back a year to two thousand two, you know, the, it was all the the used glass jaw switched Apex Theory Chevelle, yeah, all new you new know, new. you know, new and and. Like what was happening in the scene at the time is like people were just sick of edema and POD and, you know, like this this super poppy, like the the rap metal thing was like literally squeezing blood from a stone. And I think people were like, cool, I'm into melody, but like I want 
real music again. And so in 2004, like the scene was ready. Like the scene was absolutely ready. Because again, if you look at Ozfest as being like how we measured the temperature of the scene in America, 2004, second stage, Slipknot, Hatebreed, Lamb of God, Atreyu, Bleeding Through, Lacuna Coil, Every Time I Die, Unearth, You Guys, you know, Devil Driver, Throwdown, Darkest Hour, like that was that was the that was the best of the best in America. Like on the biggest tour there was, you know, you yeah. had you, and the, and the headlining was our main stage was Sabbath, Priest, Slayer, and Demu. Like holy crap, what an awesome tour! Slayer, you know? Slayer, and Black Label. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's probably you know, and this is not you know. Very little to do, do with us, but that's one of the greatest tour lineups ever assembled. Period. It was insane. For metal. There was no, there was no break. There was no break. Yeah, it was. You know, but but regardless of so, I feel like you're you're kind of talking macro, but I'm talking about your work with us specifically. Did did it feel um, you know, like you'd been vind- any vindication, or did it, or or was it? That you were so at the, at the simultaneously while while we were finally, you know, getting over that fifty thousand record sold hump and finally kind of you know getting some bigger press, you know, getting in Guitar World, getting on these bigger tours. But conversely, Shadows Fall is, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of records, and at the time, Thursday is becoming almost this like cultural you know, point, you know, for, uh, you know, like, you know, you could, you could say for what was going on for that scene, it was almost like a mini uh, Seattle moment, you know, kind of speaking to almost a, a, on a, you know, much, much bigger, bigger scale. So it was this thing where, where we were doing well, but in comparatively the other things you were working on, it was kind of small potatoes or how is it, what's your memory of that? Like, no, I mean, I didn't look at you like, oh, it wasn't like, you know, you know, how, you know, how do you make a gigantic pumpkin if you're a pumpkin farmer? You know what the rule is? Mm-mm. You cut the smaller pumpkins off the vine, right? Mm-hmm. So that the larger pumpkin gets all the nutrients and stuff, right? That's how you make a giant pumpkin. Uh-huh. But I that was not how I, by, by the way, random things I know, uh, it, that was not how I was looking at my roster. I looked at it as like, great, the more doors that I can open with shadows fall on thursday means the more doors i can open for murder by death and for you guys and then from my own career trajectory i was like oh people are starting to look at me like i'm not a bullshit artist like i'm not some little indie guy yelling and weehawking like i really know what i'm doing like i can actually make a difference in a band's career and like you know there were more phone calls coming in at that point than they were going out so you know i don't know that i stopped to think or stopped to smell the vindication flowers so to speak but i definitely sat down for a moment there too was like holy crap this is real like this is really real like we're playing real ball here you know mhm well yeah let me tell you what too those were fun times yeah <laughs> it was it was a good it was a good run <laughs> well, I, like I can only imagine, because because like I said, we were, you know, it it was it's just a very peculiar thing, you know, where because all the bands started, you know, pretty much, you know, and I and the bands I speak of because you know we weren't we didn't know the other bands that you worked with quite as well, but we had very very good and personal relationships with Shadows Fall and Thursday, so kind of that was our kind of little little bubble. But just to see the levels that they were going at, I think it it points to that thing of, 
this idea of ambition of people, you know, and artists and, you know, the egos you tend, no matter how well you're doing, you tend to kind of look at, you're always looking at that next rung of the ladder and, and, and that creates a space of inadequacy. You know, I think, especially us being, being young and, and figuring that, figuring it out. But so at that time, as far as we're concerned, it's finally happening, right? We're fulfilling our destiny. You know, I think all in a row we did, uh, I think we, we went Machine Head in the, in the U.S., OzFest. Oh, no, no, Machine Head. Then we did the New Wave American Heavy Metal Tour, Killswitch, Camera, Shadow Swall in the U.K., then OzFest, then Japan within Flames, and then Machine Head in Europe. That was our year, basically. It was, it was a sick. Those were sick tours. Yeah, and that 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 J- Japanese tour was one of the best tours I've ever been a part of. That was unbelievable. Yeah, but keep in mind, basically from so Ozfest, we had to pay, we had to sign a new re- another record, take ungodly amounts of tour support, and yep. and we made a ten dollar a day per diem on Ozfest. We made seventy dollars a week. That was how yep. much money for for two months. And and I think the Machine Head tour, which was two and a half months, I think it was something very similar to that. Like we literally got a per diem, and that was the only money. And we had to take a got ungodly amount of money tour support to do that tour. But the tours were so big, and we saw the record sales on Ozfest. Like it was to feel like we were one of the top selling bands on the second stage, which I thought was uh, a, a certain vindication as well. But somewhere within that time frame. The relationship between the uh, you and the band soured, um, and I think it, it happened more you know not between you and I. Uh, we always got got along, but between certain members of the band. What's your recollection of what went wrong and why why you wanted to to exit? Kind of when the band seemed to be finally breaking. You know, it it goes in line with a couple of stories I still tell because clearly, like, look, I look, I work in the software business now, so you know, my appreciation of music is literally just a fan appreciation at this point. But you know, I was at a point in my career where I was looking at all of this work we were doing, all of these things that all my bands were accomplishing, and like, I, you know, I at that point was dating the girl I met because of your tattoo. You know, like I wanted a, a life, like I wanted to make more than ten dollars a day, and. You know, I'm starting to take into effect, like, what can I actually do with my career? What's good? What's bad? And, you know, I had to make some pretty tough decisions. And the problem with music music in general is it's built off the backs of people that never wanted to be in business, right? It was built off the backs of people that wanted to play a song, right? And if your only ambition in life is to, like, master the guitar, like, you're never going to learn how to balance a checkbook. You're never going to learn career trajectory from a sales standpoint like all those things that i thought was my job to teach a band like how to be businessmen like we're not sinking in with you guys maybe you know and i mean that collectively because you know like you said you and i had a very good rapport and i think you got it but i think you also had to fight the same battle with your band members that i had to fight except you're in the band right so whereas i could hang up the phone and go back and work on something different like you had to go back to being god forbid like that's what you did so I think it was easier for me to disconnect at that point. But like I felt like I couldn't teach you guys anything further. And for all of these great things that were happening, like I couldn't I felt like I was fighting tooth and nail 
to get some of your band members to like think strategically and like take a moment and like put the ego aside and like be humble and like what can I do next to help and like you know a tour is not a party on wheels like it's a fucking business and I felt like I couldn't get a lot of those things out of you guys and so ultimately the reason I left the music business ties into this conversation but I felt like I didn't have the ability to teach musicians how to be businessmen like I like that was the fault in my style of a manager mm-hmm. like I was never going to be successful because I couldn't get I couldn't do whatever like Dave Grohl's manager did to him you know like I couldn't I couldn't figure out that hump well and so it, how, but, how much longer so you we basically split I mean I remember this distinct as I mean I think it was literally like Christmas break or whatever 2004 so going into 2005 was when uh, you quit being our our manager. How much longer after that did you keep managing? 2010. Also oh, for 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 quite some time it wasn't. So you were you were still have, heavily involved. So what happened in that in that five years? Or was it was it was that was a continued um, theme in terms of how you dealt with musicians and trying to deal with deal with that? Or was it? Or let me ask you this: Did so the decline of the music industry, well, the record industry specifically, you know, and kind of understanding that that pie that we're all trying to get a piece of was kind of slowly shrinking. Have anything to do with it? And kind of being yeah, I mean, thinking? yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely a little of all of the above. You know, sort of the, the tectonic plates pushing up against California removed from the United States is really what it was there. You know, there was me being consistently frustrated in my ability to advance my, you know. The, the careers of the bands I worked with, but at the same time, like it became harder and harder and harder to make money. And I got sick of like, I'd be on the phone call with a booking agent or, you know, a manager or a record label. And I'm negotiating over whether my band should get paid 75 or 50 bucks a night. Like I'm clearly not going to make any money. The band's clearly not going to be able to make it to the next tour or date anyway. Like, like, I'm spending so much time arguing over 25 bucks. And then the next phone call I pick up and I call a band member and I was like, same thing. How was the show last night? How many people were there? How much merch did you sell? Did you look at this contract I sent you? Like I had like the list of business and all they wanted to talk about, and this was not your band, but the breaking moment for me was I was on the phone with one of my more successful artists and all that the, their business rep wanted to talk about was how they didn't like the color red on the back of the t-shirt we had made. And I threw my phone across the office. I was like, that's, that's your priority today. Like we're sitting on all these other things that are strategic to your trajectory and can help your career. And you want to talk about how you didn't like the color red. And I asked you how many t-shirts you sold and you didn't have an answer. Like, I don't care if you like the color red or not. If you sold a billion t-shirts with that color red on it, then we're going to make more shirts with that red on it. Like, <laughs> you know, what's you know, what's really funny. <laughs> or, or I guess, I guess, I, ironic is I had Brand Brandon uh, Shapati from Bleeding Through on the show, you know, a couple shows ago, and he has literally the exact inverse story of why he wanted to take a step back from the band, or 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 at least his his whole perspective changed where he was basically dealing with his manager. And his manager was, you know, every day it was, so what what are the pre-sales? How is merch? And he got sick of that line of of just it being so far removed from the reasons why he did it. And he was so obsessed with the numbers 
and the kind of the rat race aspect of it that he felt detached from the you know the reason why he got in in the music and you have it and and I think that's so telling about um perhaps why someone is an artist and why someone is on the the industry side of things and and you know you know under trying to figure out the compatibility of those those two mindsets yeah exactly and and for, you know, for me, I was trying to figure out, like, what do I want as a career? What do I have the ability to do for a musician? And what is it that they want or are willing to do? And they weren't lining up anymore, you know? And, you know, the other, going back specifically to, you know, why I ended up wanting to break it off with you guys, Doc, this is one of the most important moments that's ever happened to me in my life. I went to go see a show at Roseland and the opening band was the Lost Prophets. Now forget about what we know about them now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> at the time we didn't know that. And I loved them. Right. Me too. And they had, I was a fan of that band too. The, yeah. They were, they had sold like 10 records in America and they'd sold a hundred thousand in the UK. And I was friends with those guys and they were playing like their first American show. And I walked in and all of the music industry reps were at that upstairs bar in the back doing the hobnobby thing, not paying attention to the band. And I wanted to go watch Lost Prophets. And I went down to like one of those balconies in the ro- on the upper level of the Roseland. And there's this like homeless dude standing there and he's got like some beat ass Levi's on, some like scuffed up shell tops, like a windbreaker that looks like he found in the trash. His hair is everywhere. Looks like he hasn't shaved in 100 years. It literally looked like the stage manager handed a hobo a ticket. And this dude is rocking out to Lost Profits, right? So I'm like, and every all the industry people are making fun of the hobo, right? I'm like, I need to know who this is. Like, you're not just gonna. This can't be what people think it is. And I walk up and I and I I stand next to him just to get a closer look. And he leans over and he's like, "Hey, Rev, what's up?" And I'm like, "Hello." And he goes, "Hey, Cliff Bernstein." And all of a sudden, I freeze in my tracks, right? He, for those that don't know your audience, he man, he runs Q Prime, and they manage Metallica, <laughs> and ACDC, and like a billion other bands that make billions of dollars. Yeah, and he knew who I was, and I was like, oh my god, Cliff Bernstein, like, oh my god, I'm such a huge fan. Like, you're like my, you know, you're you're my you're you're the god I look up to. Like, I want to be you. And he's like, I love your band, Shadows Fall. I'm watching my band. Can we talk later? And I was like. Yeah, of course. And you know, at the when Lost Profits were over, he was done rocking out, and he came over. At, he came up to me only, and I was standing with all of our peers. He said, "Here's my secretary's card. I want you to call her on Monday, and I want you to set an appointment to come see me." And he walked out, and he didn't say hi to anybody else. Like you were arguably the most important manager in the business. How come? How did this just happen? I went to go see him a couple days later. We sat in his office. We BSed for like an hour. I had an unbelievable conversation with him. I got to ask him all the questions like, you know, what was it like when you found Def Leppard? Like, how did that happen? Tell me about ACDC. Like, you know, for me, it was like, soak it all in, soak it all in. And he said something to me that had unbelievable amounts of impact. And I said, you know, Cliff, how do you choose which bands you'd work with? Because they just signed Baroness. And I thought that was really crazy. And he said to me, Rev, there's only two reasons to work with a band. Either you are unbelievably passionate about the music and the people, or you're making so much money it doesn't matter. I went back to my desk that day, and I looked at how much money you guys owed me. And all these difficult conversations we had where I felt like we disagreed on everything. I couldn't teach the band anything else. And I was like, well, neither of these things are true anymore. Time to go. 
Wow. Hey, man, that's, I mean, I think from, from, from my perspective, and, and listen, it's really important for me, you know, and this is even when I left the band, you know, to to not disparage anyone or throw anyone under the bus because it it is what it is you know um you know you you everyone in my band was going through those situations for the first time and not everyone handled it great um and and to me like i tried to to take all the lessons of why that didn't work out because the thing that you know maybe you don't know but essentially once we split from the syndicate and the thing that was so great was that the years previous to that we had stability right so basically from 2000 to 2005 we had same manager tim Bohr was the was the agent for most of that time um and then it went from a a, a, a stable situation to essentially unstable for the rest of the band's career um and it was hard to put even even though the next record constitution did just as good or better um and there was all these opportunities and all 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 this but it never you know that stability it's the one thing that you even though we learned all these lessons about all right we need to be humble we need to you know work this way and be more mindful of this and and trust me i the best thing about being so close with you was i was able i basically just kind of I just was like a sponge. I just tried to basically everything I know about working, you know, working a record and building a band and um, understanding kind of all the, the facets of, of how, you know, because I remember just, just distinctly of being nothing, basically being a band that no one knows and turning that into a band that people do know from you, you know, because I just I would just absorb all the every every everything I heard. And it was, you know, I definitely feel like, at least I did, I can't speak for everyone in the band, but I definitely learned the mistakes of that, even though in spite of that, we really couldn't, you know, you just, you can't go back in a time machine, you know, because you don't nope. know a mistake you made at a particular junk juncture, if that, that opportunity might be lost forever, you know, you might, you don't get a chance to kind of rewrite that, that course. You know, so it's, uh, you know, th- those those pivotal moments, you know, in, in many ways that define you and that, you know, but the thing is, unfortunately, about a lot of these things, you can never learn unless you fuck up. It's never going to sink in, <laughs> you know? Yep. You know, so now you have to build up your mistakes. But look, I think I think that, you know, the story of God forbid is an, is an amazing story because everything was going right, like on paper, like. All the things that you were supposed to do, we did. And, you know, you, like that year that you literally, t- you toured for 12 months. And I would look at my other bands who would be on, a, you know, they tour for a month and be like, I'm tired. Like, look at God forbid, they're in a van. All right. And, you know, I learned from working with you guys at the time that it was like blind determination. Going back to, again, why I thought it was appropriate to call that record that, like, you guys were going to get up and go at it as hard as you could. Now, ultimately, I think that may have played into why, you know, it sort of fell apart because we, you know, we didn't give ourselves a break or we didn't, you know, stop to think about what's next, but, and we just kept pushing, but that was at the time, that's what we knew, but, you know, we, we learned some great things and look, there are still things that I learned from working with you guys that play into my every single day. You know, I, I wouldn't be here at, the, at Yex doing what I do 
if I hadn't worked with you guys. It taught me how to build a business from the ground up. It taught it taught me how to brand. It taught me how to use nothing to make something. You know, it taught me how to trust people. It taught me how to network. It taught me how to have the importance of having a team. You know, it taught me the importance of looking at things from a strategy and from your heart at the same time. So there, you know, there is a lot of important lessons I think that came out of uh, out of that story that ring true for almost anybody. You know. Yeah. No. No. No, no doubt. So, so when you and I got and I got I got no hate for anybody. God forbid. I love all you guys. No, listen, man. I, I mean, <laughs> I have the one thing out of essentially being having no presence in the music industry or any industry for that for that matter. To up to that point, working with you and the syndicate was my only experience. You know, um, so that was kind of the basis for everything moving forward, you know, and, and kind of like, all right, this is, you know, that was in many ways like my college education. Because basically I met you, I was 19 years old. <laughs> so basically that was that was my college. All right, here's your, you know, and, the, and, the, and listen, and I can, you know, I learned more about the music industry in that time period than any college could teach you about the music industry, at least our little section of the music industry. Um, I mean, who could? What, what other band can can say something like, from not having a record deal to main stage of Oz, or I'm sorry, to, to doing Ozfest in four years? Um, that, that's in, that's an intense trajectory, man. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, listen, it's. I I can say this, and I've said this on this podcast, and I say it before. We never had any expectations of ever being anything, really. I remember going to 2000, Ozfest 2002, and not in a million years thinking we, we would ever be on a tour like that. I'm like, our bands, I, I didn't put the two and two together. I, I was like, oh, this is like a mainstream, this is a regular person tour. And we're like freaks and geeks over, over here, you know, playing this insane, <laughs> insane music. So to me, every point that we got to was always like, Oh, we're we're allowed in this club. This is a real thing, yo. Because <laughs> it's true. I I thought you know I listen like I'm you know machine had burned my eyes when I was you know seventeen years old and it or watched Pantera and I they weren't even people to me. They were like it was like another planet, you know. Like I didn't think that was a real like I never even thought touring was a thing you could do like as a job until we did that one week tour, our first tour ever, we did a week with Shadows Fall, All Out War, and just talking to Matt Bacand, you know, about, um, you know, he was just telling me how they kind of did their thing and how, yeah, we make money doing this, you know, I have a distro, and I'm like, so you can do this? This is a real thing? You know, it, <laughs> I, I never, because all, all I knew was the hardcore scene basically was like where everyone, you know, was in college and did the band on the side and, you know, kind of, they did the band for a while and then they went and they got a real job. You know, it, it, it you know, it never, but we just kind of, we never looked too far past our own nose um, and just kind of just went to the next small goal. That was, that was what we did. It was never big picture, you know, to be, truth, truth be told. Um, you know, I don't want to occupy too much of your time, but um, before we go, I kind of want to ask you, so what did, you know, so when you were, done with the music industry or i guess the, the management side of it where did you go next and did you know what you were going to do or is it how, what was that you know if anything this show is about is 
those times of uncertainty and those times of, of great change, you know, and transitions. And how did you deal with that transition? I mean, it's something you had been doing for a decade plus at that time. And what was that like going into another man, realm? Man, it was hard. <laughs> it was super hard because at, at, at the time, like then I, now I was married, you know, and like all those other like life things that I wanted to do where I couldn't sleep on a floor and I would, like I had them and I own and I, you know, I'd left the syndicate. I'd started my own business. I had two employees, you know, I had Jackie and, and the other guy who we won't mention. And, uh, you know, like I had responsibilities and, and I woke up one day so and I was is like, yeah, yeah. Management or this is the business. This, after this, this is, this is, this is, this is when I started. Yeah. Okay. Um, after, after I left the syndicate, but you know, I woke up one day and I was friggin' miserable and I was friggin' upset and you know, I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't help anybody. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I was looking at, you know what it was, Doc? It was really like the the proliferation of social media, right? Like I remember calling you or calling, you know, Jeff Rickley or, or calling Brian Fair and saying, hey, did you update Twitter last night? You know, or did you, you know, did you remember to make a MySpace blog? And you guys always had the same answer, all of you. Oh, we were too busy or, you know, we, we couldn't get, we couldn't find dial up. <laughs> Like, yeah. And like it just wasn't important to you, but it was important to me. And I thought it was important to the future of the band. And so I pushed like we got to have websites. We got to have this. We got to have photos. We got to have blogs. We got to have social media. And, you know, the music business was really the first industry to embrace those platforms. I mean, and, you know, bands also ruined MySpace, but, um, you know, they figured that out quickly and people started looking at me as having this additional skill that might not just apply to music. Like, oh, he understands digital marketing or social media or whatever you called it at the time, you know, and we had also opened Idle Hands Bar, the bar I used to own, right? And I was taking a lot of those things that I learned from you guys and working with the other bands, like, and applying them to a bar and they were working, right? Mm -hmm. Except I had more than, you know, Revolver Magazine, you know, Century Media Distro and your Twitter page to work with. I had Yelp and I, you know, Google my business and Foursquare and all these other tools that I could use to promote. And so we approached that business like a band and we built it like a band. And I thought, oh my God, I know what I'm doing. Like, I understand hospitality marketing, you know, like it's, I'm not just a music guy. Like I'm a, marketing guy i get it and you know at the time some other things people might not know about me i used to write one of the world's top three hamburger blogs you know burgerconquest.com used to you don't anymore I, I still write i still write it it's just very different now but i you know people were starting to know me in the food and restaurant business and i was starting to get calls from restaurants saying like hey you know what that stuff you did for your bands could you do it for my restaurant and so on the day that i woke up and was like i hate bands I hate music. Everything I like about music, I hate now. You know, I'd broken up with you guys. I'd broken up with Thursday. You know, the, the, the Shadows Fall guys who are literally, you know, my bros. I, I built my entire career with that band. When they called me and said, we're going to try something else, you know, Murder by Death had already gone independent. Like, all I had left was, you know, Poison the Well. And CKY, and I hated the CKY guys. And Poison the Well, despite the fact of being one of my all-time absolute most favorite bands, couldn't make money if we tried. Right? I was like, "What am I doing? Like, what? Like, I can't make money with bands. I don't like music anymore. I hate everybody I have to talk to. I feel inadequate. And there's this whole other industry that's like begging for my attention. 
I'm going to go try that out. And it was super scary. And I literally docked, you know, to get to the point here, I stood up at my desk one day at Yeah Management when I was at 853 Broadway at 14th Street. And I said, that's it. I'm closing the syndicate. I'm closing Yeah Management. And Jackie looked at me and she was like, what? I was like, you can go home. Oh, I thought you were going to do Jerry Maguire and be like, who's coming with me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. When I left the syndicate and started, yeah, management, that was the Jerry Maguire. Oh, okay. Who's coming with me? I stood up and said, who's going with me? And Mel stayed and the other guy and Jackie came with me. But (laughs) when I closed down, when I closed down, yeah, management, I literally stood up on my desk and I said, that's it. All my bands can have their contracts back. I'm out of here. Here's all your files. I think I even emailed you. Let me know if you want your files. Like, here they are. I don't care. I think you did. I think I might have sent them to you on a hard disk. I don't know, whatever. But yeah. I, I literally was like, I'm not just going to like sneak out of this. Like, I am literally getting up and throwing my hands and walking away. And at the time, I was doing a little bit of consulting for Thrillist. And I called Thrillist the next day and was like, hire me. And they were like, why should we hire you? I was like, there's nobody else on your team that understands social media, hospitality, brand building, and sales like I do. Like, you don't have a single person with my background. And they were like, done and like three weeks later i was working for thrillist <laughs> you know i mean i think so kind of to, to go go back to uh what i was talking about about the the defiant ones that documentary about uh jimmy iovine and dr dre and that whole documentary is really about these people who who did one thing very intensely for a certain amount of time and then they had that moment of like, I'm out, I'm done. You know, they just kind of they drain every last juice from the berry, and then once it's once it's gone, they're ready to 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 move on. You know, and I and I think, you know, in 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 many ways, you know, the reason why the show is called the X Man is that me making that decision to leave my band has you know, not that le- you know the leaving the band defined me, but the the that idea of like chapters have to end and you have to be willing because the thing is i feel like a lot of people sometimes they just keep doing something because fear because they're you know it's the i guess it's the devil they know you know um and uh and stepping into the unknown has become the thing that has defined me post leaving the band you know And, and so i i i kind of identify with that and it's um you know it just it just takes it takes a lot you know so it's uh i so but how did you how did that how did that feel what did it i mean obviously it was scary but i mean did, was it exhilarating was it you know inspiring uh it, it was frightening i like terribly frightening because again like i had responsibilities you know i had employees and a wife and all this stuff but you know I'll, all i had done for 11 years professionally was manage bands you know and run agencies and before that i was running a radio station so like the only thing i'd done in my career was music so to stand up one day and go i mean you have to be at your wits end with something to literally to say piss off and i was frightened and i was scared and, Here's the crazy thing. I had funding. Like somebody was funding my my startup at the time. And that person's company got bought by Warner Music Group. And as Warner Music Group was going through the line items, right? They were like, "Hey, what's this yeah management?" And he's like, "Oh, that's this, you know, artist management and branding. You know, we were doing some VIP ticketing." He's like, "Oh, it's this other project I'm developing and here's their trajectory." And Warner Music Group went, "Nah, it's gone." And he called me the next day. He's like, "Sorry, no money." And I literally went from like 
making some nice bank to not having a dollar in the bank. Was it before or after, so, before or after you quit? That was before. Oh, because okay. I tried okay. to keep it. I tried to keep that was in like October of 2009, 2010. And I kept it going till like March or April of 2011 and was like, I can't do this. Like I can't, I just, I, I almost had to quit because it, it was so miserable that I didn't have a choice and it was scary and it was still scary. And I, doc, I feel like I lived under having to redefine my career and prove to people that I was good at doing something like I had to go back to ground zero and I don't feel like I put my feet back in a place where people respected what I bring to the table until like maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, you know? So that took five years of reinventing myself to do what I think I'm always did, you know, I can stuff. I, well, in, in, in that respect, it's actually kind of funny now that I'm looking at it at our, timelines and trajectories because they're actually very similar i guess you know i i left god forbid a little bit after but i kind of mentally checked out probably around that same time 2010 to 2011 um and same thing it's you know it you know when you end one chapter of your life um figuring out especially you know we're you know we're we're not old men but you know i i, I would go so far as to call us young men either uh, and when you're doing that kind of in that that mid that mid age, you know, it's yeah, it, it's not going to happen over overnight. Um, but I, you know, I but I've kind of learned to uh, understand that, you know, that is the only way you can really, really learn is is by kind of wiping the slate clean and saying, who the who the fuck am I? Yep. <laughs> who am yeah, I really? True. But guess what? When you ask the question. You're asking the question because you don't have the answer yet, and you got to go and got to find out who the hell you are. It's not it's not something that's going to materialize, and you got to go and you got to you got to you know. And being a guy who uh, who started a burger blog, you got to go <laughs> taste a lot of fucking burgers <laughs> to know what kind of burger you know. Like you have to go and and you know. And I I realized I was doing the same thing for so long. I never went and tasted the other burgers. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what I'm good at outside of this because you th- you know i thought especially being a musician you're like i don't i'm not good at anything that's all i know how to do and then you realize you start doing different things you're like no no i can do other things i do have other skills i've learned especially the great thing about being in the band is you didn't realize but you were actually learning like 10 different jobs you yep. know you were you were learning i was learning about branding i was learning about logistics like i, I ended up working at the nba um you know brooke mclean yep you know, and, you know, her being on production, you know, brought me into that and thought I would be good at that because I was the point guy in the band and, and dealt with uh, the logistics of, of touring and and facilitating all, all, all that stuff. So, I you know, in a sense, I, I, I used to think, you know, that, oh, I have a 10 year gap in my work history. And I'm like, no, I have a ten-year work history of doing a lot of shit, and I have to be, <laughs> own, and I have to own up to it and say, no, I can't. I might not know everything about your industry, but I've learned so much that it is adaptable to other mediums. Um, <clears throat> you know, as long as you know whomever I'm dealing with has some patience for me to kind of get caught up. You know. Yeah, it's funny because I look at. <laughs> I'm just going to use a band as an example. Like I can't imagine being Quiet Riot. Like I can't imagine having a song songs that were as big as they were and then like 
Kevin Dubrow going, yeah, let's go do a 300-seat venue when I'm 61 or whatever age. Like, I can't imagine that because I want to reinvent myself and I don't want to do the same thing and I want to learn and I want to grow and I want to try new stuff and I want to like, I want my career to have its own trajectory. I don't want to suck it out of life, you know? Yeah. No, I, I we are, we are very similar in, in, <laughs> in that, in that regard, my friend. So, well, God bless quiet, God bless quiet, right? Yo, listen, I'm in LA, <laughs> so I, I know, um, the guy, uh, the bass player for Quiet Riot, um, helps run this Ultimate Jam Night out here. This guy Chuck Wright, really great guy, incredible, incredible musician, and uh, he he helps put that together. So so props to to, to, to Quiet Riot. Um, before before we let you go, so what are you where are you at now? You know, is it you know is that something you want to talk about as far as your career trajectory? Sure. So I, I work for a company called Yext, and we produce a software um, that like location-based businesses and professionals can use to correct and manage their digital knowledge online. So like if I Google best pizza near me, right, I get a bunch of results, right? Well, how do those results get there? Well, that's called digital knowledge, and Google's an intelligent service. So if your information, like your name, address, phone numbers, the things on your menu, you know, whatever it is, specialties of your business, your employees, if that stuff's not correct in a way that Google wants it to be correct, you don't make those results, hmm. right? And there are literally hundreds of sites out there that Google looks at to get those answers. Same with Yahoo, same with Bing, all that kind of stuff, right? And if you don't take control of that, then it has control of your business. And those sites get seen three to time, three to 10 times more often than a business's website. So the company I work for creates software that makes managing controlling that super crazy easy <laughs> and super affordable. And you know, my role here is to help partner agencies who leverage our technology to help their clients. I provide the marketing for them. Uh, Doc, I love it. It is one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. I am super passionate about location-based marketing. I'm super passionate about digital marketing. I'm super psyched about help being able to help other businesses grow their business. And it, it's like I have a ton of baby bands again. You know, I get put on the phone all the day, all the time with like potential customers who I look at as like bands that want to get signed. And we get I get put on the phone with customers that are already using Yext to, to manage their digital knowledge. And hey, what are best practices? How can I help you? And it's a lot like managing bands. It's a lot like, hey, I know all these things I can help you with. Please use me as a resource. And I love it. It's a ton of fun. Well, it's the it's the creativity of business because much like making a song or any other intellectual property, you're building something out of nothing. And and that feeling and, and that process is um i think kind of universal you know whether it's a band or or obviously these these new mediums you're you're you're, you're working in. and i've you know i've noticed me you know being a creative person maybe not necessarily um business oriented that's not necessarily where I, where i live but i've definitely like i get the same feeling writing and doing the podcast i do from making music because it's all making something out of nothing, you know? And I think that's probably why you get that same feeling or I would, I would suspect so. Yeah. And I do like helping people. And from a fun standpoint, uh, if you go Google the words expert burger taster, uh, I'm likely to be the top three to 11 results. <laughs> okay. So, so now, now me, I, so I've followed, you know, this, this, 
whole this other thing, you being Burger Conquest gentlemen. Now, how have you managed to make your way through that without, you know, say type two diabetes, <laughs> high blood pressure? How are you alive? After all, I see all the things you post, and I'm like, are you eating all this stuff, or is it just like you just reposting stuff you've seen? So, so for your listeners. Go to Instagram, follow me. I'm Rev Ciancio. It's R E V C I A N C I O. You'll see what Doc's talking about. I, I'm I am known for like cheeseburgers, pizza, loaded French fries, you know, chicken wings. So I don't necessarily eat everything you see. I eat a lot of it. Um, I do wear black, uh, and when I'm not. I'm not eating a double cheeseburger with French fries stuffed in the bun. I'm probably eating a salad or yogurt. Okay, you balancing, uh, and balancing. I, See, I, I have a theory as a donut enthusiast. Like, I feel like I, I, I get into very deep conversations about donuts. So maybe I, I should be donut conquest guy. But I was like, I'm like, if I just alternate every donut with a salad, then I'm probably live to be 87 years old. You know, yeah, based on no science. Walk. Yeah, and I try to walk to work. <laughs> That's the thing. There you go. I also I also have a, a 15 month old baby at home who's in the 90 percentile, so he's like way bigger than he's supposed to be, and he likes to be picked up a lot. So I feel like I'm doing like a lot of weightlifting at okay. home, you know. Okay. Well, it sounds like he, he will eventually have uh, a nice burger capacity. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe in the dy- dystopian future where we're eating soy green, that that might not be possible. <laughs> but you know, let's see if we can get a, a, a couple in before the apocalypse. <laughs> anyway, uh, Rev, uh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. I, I really appreciate it. This is, um, you know, I'm kind of using this show, you know, for my own selfish um, motivations in some way to to do the, a kind of autopsy on what happened because there's key figures like yourself, you know, that had such a big impact on my life and the, and the life of this of, 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 of God forbid. And it's like, you know, like I said, I'm not nostalgic in that way, but I am interested in history and, and learning from it, you know, and having people that you're, you know, the, the perspectives you you have and the stories you have only you have, and you're the only one that could tell that. So I think it's, you know, in a way this show is, it can be its own kind of historical document, you know, almost like this, um, you know, kind of audio history, you know, for people interested in what, in what happened. Yeah. I'm going to take a quote from from Byron here. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it any better, man. <laughs> I mean, look, and look, if you want to talk about the impact that that God forbid has had in my life. Yes, I have a God forbid tattoo. Yes, it's how I met my wife, and yes, it is how I named my agency, Yeah Management, because being around Byron all the time. Do you remember this all he he used to like not want to talk and you mm. go up and say something to him and you get like, you, know, you and I are talkative. We go up and be like, okay, here's the thing. And I thought it all out and blah, 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 blah. And Bebo would just go, yeah, man. And it was like so debilitating that <laughs> like you just wanted him to like have an engagement with you on something. So I started repeating it back to him to be obnoxious and it became part of my vernacular. Yeah. And so <laughs> everything was yeah man yeah man yeah man and when i left the syndicate to start my own agency i was like oh yeah management <laughs> well there's a did you ever watch the, the dvd the documentary rated r for real no so you if you get a an hour and a half of, of your time at some point it's on youtube actually dallas up, uploaded it and there's a whole section on god forbid uh slang 
there's a section <laughs> on the word nigger because we like, you know, because of, um, you know, speaking of vernacular, God forbid vernacular. Uh, so, yeah, there we have infected a lot of language within the heavy metal community, you know, for better or worse, maybe worse. I don't know. But we, you know, we've definitely created a lot of uh, potty mouths out there. But, um, yeah, man. No, seriously, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. You, oh, it's a pleasure. Do you guys remember when you used to call my office, what you used to say when they would answer the phone? Do you remember this? No. <laughs> so somebody in my office at the syndicate be like, hello, syndicate, be like, yo, put the white master on the phone. <laughs> I never said that. That sounds like a Corey or Byron thing. Actually, did Corey ever call you up and be like, sup, nigger? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hard R? They, like, yeah but, yeah, but it wouldn't even be me. It'd be one of the employees. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I had to go apologize to people and my business partners would take me into another room and be like, dude, you got to talk to those guys. <laughs> listen, man. It could, it, listen, I would say it could have been worse and you could have been like dealing with like death row records and thugs <laughs> and you'd get like have to wear like bulletproof vests and stuff, but you'd also be making millions of dollars. So I guess it was a trade-off. It was a trade-off. Yeah, it's a different, different, different vibe.
damn. Ain't heard that in a minute. But I felt it was appropriate. For those who don't know, that was the song Nothing from the God Forbid album Determination, which came out in 2001. And, and so much of the conversation I just had with the Rev had to do with that era of, of the band. And, and, you know, the way bands, you know, if you exist for long enough time, in a sense, you, you know, the, the change is so slow, how the, how the actual music changes. You, you go back and you listen to some earlier stuff. You're like, how do we even do that? <laughs> it's, it's so crazy, you know, but it's, it's so organic and it's so powerful. And I, and I listen to it and I understand how we were able to have the impact we, we, we did have. So despite my, uh, personal quarrel with the idea of nostalgia or, whatever the fuck that stuff is, uh, it's still kind of interesting to, to listen to something years later with, with brand new ears. So I hope you guys enjoyed the talk with the Rev. You know, even for me, it was illuminating and actually had this almost, I guess I, I was exercising some of my demons going through something like that. And because you, these, these, relationships, these professional relationships that are very personal and, and sometimes you don't get to have that conversation and I can use this as my little personal, you know, therapy session to get some closure and we don't often get that in life. So I'm enjoying it. Uh, so this is one of one of the longer shows, but I hope it kept you guys entertained. Um, we're still looking for sponsors for the show. So if you're a band, you want me to play a song, hit me up. We can talk about that. If you have a product, you know, the X-Man moves units. All right, guys, we will, we will get your stuff out there. The show is growing. We're reaching more people. It's awesome. Uh, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps more than you even know. And again, I love you guys. The X-Man keeps on keeping on. Mamba out. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.